When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast. FM 104. On tonight's show, we hear from Hazel Robinson, who has been driving across Europe with two trailers filled with food and supplies for refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Now, we'll also be hearing from Mirza Hamid, a fourth-year medical student in Ukraine, who shares his experience of how he made it out of Ukraine a few days ago. And we find out why attractive people in society are less likely to become ill. This is Room 104. FM 104. Hey Kev, how you doing? Hey Trish, is it Monday already? It is, it's Monday, Monday. Happy Monday to you. <laughs> Many happy Monday returns. <laughs> well, we have to be positive somehow, um, despite what's happening in the world right now, Kev. Exactly, yeah. How was your weekend? Uh, my weekend was a quiet one. As I said before, it will be a quiet oh, march. Oh, that was the plan, wasn't it? It will be a very quiet march. A quiet march? Yes. Even next weekend? Next weekend, yeah, there's no plans. I've... B- Basically blocked off March for just staying in yeah. and nobody call, nobody text, holding, nobody write. Holding your coins <laughs> close to your chest, <gasps> making sure they don't fly away somehow. <laughs> They're already kind of disintegrating. Flittering so. away. <laughs> I may as well try and hold on to what I have, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. How was your weekend? Good. I actually went out and um, I was in Temple Bar and I came across this lad who's doing this football challenge. I don't know if you've seen this on your TikTok feed, but basically uh, there's a lane in Temple Bar bar before you come to the kind of main square-y bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's this lad with a football and he comes up to you and goes, um, 10 euros if you can kick the ball directly to hit the blue part of the street sign. But it's not clear... For what reason he's doing this? I'm like, is this for anything? Like, or is he raising funds for a good cause? No, I don't, I don't know about that now. But it didn't so even is he seem like... he giving away his own money? It didn't even seem like it was for a social media channel, like for his social media channel. Or, like, that wasn't made clear. So there were no cameras around? There were nobody filming? No, filmed. there was nobody filming. No, but then I did see it pop up on TikTok, but it was from the point of view of someone else like showing oh, like you like a passerby passerby ah. like what I was and so he's like oh tenor if you hit the thing and I was just like nah <laughs> so, yeah if anyone knows what this dude's deal is I'm sure people have come across him because he's been out there um, the last few nights what yeah I wonder is it this because is, this is gig. the stage of the world right now he's just trying to cheer people up I think he's by trying by giving to... you a free tenor if you hit that sign 
Yeah, I know. And I was, it, was, it wasn't even explained to us very well. We were just walking by. And so, you know, when you have to do a quick sell to someone, you have to like bam, give you your whole pitch in like two seconds. Yeah. He was like, Turner, if you can hit this sign. And I was like, nah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it wasn't even like, is there an entry fee? Do you have to pay money to do it? And then you get money or is he just giving it away like some sort of pyramid scheme on the side of the road that's right or is it for his social media which in that case that wasn't clear either because I didn't see anyone filming so it's just a dude with a ball uh I don't know hanging out and giving cash away I don't know it's probably because he knows nobody's gonna make that kick unless yeah, there's oh no. like a professional footballer coming along it's a tough one I've <laughs> see, I did we kind of half stopped to see people do it and no, there were some bad fails. Like, you know when someone's lining up for, like, a penalty or something and they do the little run up and the shimmy and then the ball literally just goes flop down, you know, <laughs> goes up about, you know, a metre in the air and then boom, right down, so. And I wonder who owns the building. Do they mind this guy just kicking a ball That's public their building. window? Okay. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He'll uh, probably get shut down, so... I really want to see him now. We need to go out there I know. tomorrow and ask I him what his deal is. I do kind of want to go and find him. So, yeah. We'll okay. check it out tomorrow. Leave it see. with me. And <laughs> just ask him a few if more anyone questions. Knows, I'm sure people have come across this dude over the last couple of nights. Uh, text us in. Let us know. What is this guy's deal? Maybe we can figure it all out, Trish. Yeah, what if it's just he's just there to cheer people up and that's it? It's not really much of a story and that is there. I don't buy it. Uh, I don't buy that. Okay. Not for a second. All right. Let's 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 get your scepticism answered tomorrow. Okay. All right. All right. Let's take a look at the stories of the day. Um, okay. So I'll go first. Nearly a quarter of people. Remember, we, how's your car these days, by the way? My car is... <laughs> <laughs> this, is Dare a, I ask. this is a sore subject for me. Now, my car is much better now. I am very happy to say she's back in my arms. Um, right. <laughs> she's doing well. Uh, apparently, there's a leak, though, somewhere. So we have to get that looked at over the next couple of weeks. But it's not imminent. Now, you've just had your car repaired and you're telling me you have to get more work done. I thought the whole idea of getting it serviced is that they take all the boxes to get everything done. You would have thought so, yes. Uh, but I brought it in today just to kind of have a checkup because... Mm-hmm. Um, um, I needed to bring it in basically just yeah so they could see it's running okay and he just said they discovered there was some sort of a hole or a leakage and that will need to be looked at but as I said he said it's not it's nothing pressing that we can um, we can put that off for another couple months <laughs> I won't be coming out for the year it seems no, like no 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 you won't be able to afford it I'll uh, see you in January yeah um, when you drive into work, um, you're still having that problem with the headlights, people's headlights being yeah, and intense. it's you've shown me how to use click my rear mirror. view mirror yes. and click it. I've I've definitely clicked it. It's okay. definitely on, yes. and it's still very blinding. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure if it's just the new bulbs in the cars. Like, what is happening? Is it just me that's like half blind or what? You're not the only one getting dazzled, Trish. Nearly oh. a quarter of people. Like you think car headlights have now become too bright. Yeah. Uh, the RAC found younger motorists were the most likely to complain about the glare because they're the ones driving the non-souped up. <laughs> they can't afford, can't afford, the afford these up cars. mega LED blinders. Um, the problem is said to be getting worse with over 60% of drivers who get dazzled mm. say it's happening more 
more often than a year or two ago. So uh, as these cars come into production, obviously, yeah. um, there's more and more of them on the roads and we're getting... Dazzled. Dazzled. It's not just the white light. There's now a, like a blue tint. The blue tint. You it see freaks you out because well. yeah. you're like, are did they get guards? this modded? Or, or did these guys get it modded so that it's like that? But I think that's just the way it comes in the car. So are we looking at cars then from what, say 2018 onwards? Yeah, something that like that. Are, yeah, because. I, I have been noticing it for the longest time and now I drive at night as well. It just makes it more apparent. You see the the brighter lights and honestly, for a second or two, you feel you can't, like you can't see. Yeah, And yeah. it's a, it's an awful long Sensation. time it's to a, yeah. not have your vision when you're driving a vehicle, you know? So, I don't know. Should there be laws coming in about headlights and how but bright sure, they should be? Considering we live in such a tightly controlled, mm. you know, land and, you know, society... I would have thought that these are the exact kind of things that would have regulations mm. and that they wouldn't want to re- go over a certain point where it could be hazardous. hazardous. 64% of people saying they risk causing others on the road to have collisions. Would yeah. you go would you go along with that? Would I you? would absolutely go along with that and say it's it's definitely true and I'm surprised there hasn't been more accidents already yeah. with that dazed kind of feel you're you have the wheels in your hand and you know you're trying to get from A to B and something like dazzles you for a couple of seconds. It can be oh, yeah. off-putting and yeah, some definitely. who knows, you know, sometimes you get a little bit of a fright or a shock and you might swerve. So it is dangerous, in my opinion. But I don't know. Is it the same, though, as having um, tinted windows? Because, you know, a few years ago, yeah. the laws, they'd come in about the tinted windows and you can't have, you know, back tints and you're, you, there needs to be clear visibility. I feel like this should, like, fall under that same law. That Definitely. I yeah. feel like this is something they're going to row back on and uh, we won't have any of these dazzlers. Anymore. Anymore. Well. We can only hope. We can only hope. It's Trish and Kev on Room 104 and we are back. That was Dermot Kennedy with a bit of better days. We're hoping for better days. God, mm. aren't we just? We are. We're always hoping for better days. Well, they haven't come what? quite yet, though. Well, this might be good news for the better days that's ahead. Come Measures on, give us a pause. Let's see you try and turn this positive. And think about the every little helps motto before. Okay, okay? fine. Before okay, I'm going in. Into this. Going in with that. Well, measures to give electricity users a 200 euro credit on their bills have been signed into law, and it's expected that people will start receiving the discount from next month. Isn't that wait? What from next month? Yeah, as in April. As in April. Well, we were told it was going to be end of March in the March bill. Is that not happening now? Trish, well, is that not happening now? Oh my God, calm down. I was counting on that. <laughs> well, it says next month, so oh, I'm. Come I'm on. <sighs> That's oh, no, ridiculous. Kev. We were told in. I thought this was good news. For no, you. it's bad. Oh, it's, no, it's it's just really annoying because. Oh. If they say one thing in January, mm. saying this credit is going to be there in your March bill, and then of course, snail's pace, Ireland, it's going to be in the in April. April. Oh, come on. Sorry about that. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's still good news in some way. The money is coming. So okay, isn't but it's, that a, it's a once off yes, credit. It it's, once it off, 200 euro credit. Oh no, it'll be very welcome. Uh, no doubt about it, because yeah. I thought, so I my bills come in. Monthly, uh-huh. right? And I thought doing that, it would be a bit more manageable. Yeah. So that and you know the way you used to get an electricity bill every two months and the gas one and they'd be all over the shop. You wouldn't be able to properly budget her in my head anyway. In mm-hmm. my head, 
And so I said, okay, we'll switch to a uh, monthly okay. thing. And that'll, like, we'll be able to spread the cost more or budget better. But your bills are still sky high. Yep. It's pretty much 100 a month. Yeah. You know, it's a loss every is. month to be forking out on something that you assume isn't going to be that bad but mm. oh, look the other thing is that we're obviously we're in we're coming out of the darkest months now and um, as we move towards spring and summer exactly. we won't have to put on the less. rad and yeah. the tumble dryer and all the rest oh, of it oh god <laughs> well we still have to wash our clothes and live but you know we might not have to put on the heating yeah we'll come a little on bit on that. come on oh god please well the 200 euro credit was designed to soften the blow of the rising energy costs mm-hmm. um, it will be listed on people's bills as 176.22 um, wait a minute you're telling me it's not even the fu- but let me just finish will you <laughs> sorry I'm just I'm you are about losing this. it over there Is I want ju- this money now I do okay well no it'll be listed on your bill as 176.22 credit line but the full discount will be 200 euro and VAT is factored in alright you can all right. breathe now Kev alright <laughs> it will start appearing on bills from April and just oh, in time I'm, to give now. go on, go it's on. Get, it gets worse uh, it could be May or June before some people receive it depending on their bill cycle. What? Yeah. Look, at least we know it's coming. So just in time to give the energy companies even more of a chance to hike the prices just that much more so that this credit (laughs) doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. Great. Great. Do you have a prepay meter? No, you said you get bills through the door. So if you're a prepay meter customer, you will get credit in full from next month. Uh, however, those who currently have older prepay meters will need to redeem their credit in three separate transactions oh, over the space of a few days, which is really annoying. Like it is. It does. Did you ever like live? Did you ever live in a house which had that prepay me- the meter did. thing? Me too. I did. I lived in an apartment, and it was the bane of my life oh, because you would spend all your money, yeah. and then you forget you need to top this thing yes. up and the alarm that rings when it, <laughs> <laughs> when you run out of credit it alerts the whole neighbourhood that oh you haven't God. paid oh, it's so annoying it's and insane. embarrassing it is embarrassing <laughs> the only time uh, was when I was here in for college and we had one of these meter things now it allows you to go into a certain amount of credit right so it allows you to go into I don't know minus two or possibly five euros of you know in credit yeah after you've fully spent mm-hmm. and then the alarm goes and then the fridge shuts down and the whole food goes mold and, yeah, and uh, the shop that I, we could only get these vouchers from didn't open on a Sunday oh so if it went gosh. on a Sunday that is no lecky for the day and um, but then you end up just you end up buying let's say a tenner worth of credit but it'll just eat into the what you owed anyway so it's like having an overdraft and every time you try and pay it off you're back to where you started again I know and I was living with with strangers and they were freaking out who's turning on the television and yeah like who's keeping their laptop on how dare you you know come on thought we'd moved on from that Thank God. Uh, yeah. Moved out of that situation. Just about. For me, what was really annoying was I didn't realise that when you went on holiday or, you know, went on a trip away that obviously you leave everything running. Yeah. But I thought it would have like capped at a certain level. Oh, no cap. I coming back at one stage and I was like, I'm nearly 50 euro minus. Oh, How is no. this possible?
terrible. It just I didn't kept know it could on. go it that didn't, far. Yeah, in. it didn't turn off. Or maybe there was someone who was helping me out by pressing the because you know sometimes when you press the clear button, it just it stops the beep and it just continues. But you have to get it in time. Oh, this is awful that I know all this. But you have to get the beep in time. Like you have a bit of I'd say maybe about a minute before it's it completely stops. The beeping stops and yeah. your light will go, go off. off. And I remember getting back going, what the hell? <laughs> I did not realise that things cost this much. It's, when you're gone, I wasn't using anything. How the hell did it come up to that? But Trish, these were back in the days when elect- electricity prices were, you know, appar- supposedly grand. Imagine mm-hmm. if, Imagine now when they're just... Through the roof. <laughs> oh, we can yeah. only cry about it. I know. <sighs> well, next up, we hear from Hazel Robinson, who has been driving across Europe with two trailers filled with food and supplies for refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. And I have to say, she has really outdone herself. Yeah. You know, to to get those trailers going, raising all the, the funds from over here, mm. and then hauling that across Europe. All across Europe. Wow. Absolutely, fair play to her, more power to her and her mum, two incredible ladies, so uh, they've got a great story, we'll be hearing from them next. Next. You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast. FM 104. It's Room 104 with Trish and Kev. Now, on the line live, we have Hazel Robinson, who is currently on her way to Poland with two trailers to help the people of the Ukraine in this crisis. Now, Hazel, firstly, we commend you and your bravery and kindness to help the people of the Ukraine who are in desperate need right now. So tell me, where are you now? What has this mammoth journey been like so far? And when did you set off? Yeah, so uh, we set off uh, Thursday, and um, we have we, we we've actually just been to the border this morning with the Ukraine border this morning. Um, we got loads of donations from Waterford and from Longford. That's where me and my mom are from, Longford County, Longford. And um, we loaded the whole van up, and we just made our way over. It's taken us since Thursday, so she's nearly forget what day it is, what day of the week it is now. We've been feels like we've been driving forever. I don't think anybody would understand like if you're not used to driving which I'm not now my mom is but I'm not and you know the magnitude of actually how far it is like I you know I was a bit naive when I was setting off but I'm I'm so so glad that we made it there this morning you know I'm I'm just so glad because they need these these things they need the donations it's heartbreaking what's going on you know Hazel talk us through how this all came about um, and and what kind of what kind of goods you're carrying yeah, so I run a social media group called Updates Ireland and we have um, nearly 180,000 members. So um, right after, pretty soon, a few days after, um, we heard that uh, Putin and Russia had gone into Ukraine um, and everybody was in shock. But about three days after, I got a message from these girls in Waterford and um, they were like, they, they, they were actions. They were, we're, we're, we're going to help. And they were asking for donations and and help getting clothes, baby, we nappies, um, non-perishable uh, food, you know, like pastas and stuff like that. Um, oh, we bought over so much, so much stuff. Uh, you name it, we we bought it. If we could get it in blankets, tents, what else did I see? Like everything and anything, anything that we thought would have been of use for them, um, coming through the borders. But um, sorry now if I'm sounding a bit off. 
off because I'm just my my brain is like mush today. I'm so bloody tired. But um, yeah, you've been on a journey yeah. and a half, so we understand. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, when we got there this morning, well, because like, we didn't know what to expect either, and um, you know, oh, sorry, I'll get back to that. So the girls, anyway, on my my social media uh, group, they asked for help, and I said, wait a minute, this is something that we can do. Like we can, I I'm gonna highlight this for them and see if see if anybody you know uh, gives them a hand and what I couldn't believe like none of us could have believed the generosity of the Irish people it was just breathtaking it was unbelievable they came out in their droves absolute droves to donate because everybody wants to help you know and we were getting messages left right and center from all over the world like from Canada from from America from everywhere and they're all saying this is what we love about the Irish God bless the Irish this is what we love about them because when there's when when there's a time in need and there's a crisis they all band together and this is what they do and it's you know it's lovely to see and as I said it before and I'll say it again we really don't give ourselves enough credit we don't as a country we we're too hard on ourselves because you know it's 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 fantastic to see this going on you know and it's fantastic and it makes you proud you know it makes you proud of where you're from and I'm really proud really proud of the Irish people you know and they basically got us up that road with all the, the messages and everything else but um, anyway so my mum's a truck driver and what she usually does is um, she we run an equine rescue called Hungry Horse Outside and um, what mummy does is she does a rehoming scheme where she will rehome horses and equines to you know different parts in, in of Europe like Germany Sweden Sweden, you know, Denmark, all there. And that's what she would usually be doing. She'd usually be driving, driving, rehoming horses. But um, she was actually on her way back from Germany when I rang her, uh, would have been last Saturday, last weekend. And I said it to her, I said, Mom, look, these girls are needing help with transportation and bringing all the, the donations over. Is it something, you know, what, is there any way we can help them? And I didn't even have to ask. She just straight away, she said, "This we can do this. This is something we can do. So, um, she she said just tell them tell them we're going to do it so so that was basically it so we the next thing I knew sure we were we were on a boat on the way over and you know so so tell us about that part of the journey then so obviously you would have left um Ireland uh, stacked up your two trailers tell us about the actual journey then like so how long it's taken yeah. I know you said you've you've been going since last Friday um or last yeah. Thursday but tell us like what has you know every step of the journey been like and who are you dealing with yeah. over there have you found it difficult or has it been um easy enough to kind of get in contact with people and who you're who you're yeah, trying to um, deliver the goods to I'll tell you something, like I said, if you're not used to driving, it's not for the faint-hearted. That's for sure, you know. Um, you're you're on the road from morning to night, like, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly going to get up the way. But, um... The, the the journey has been fine, thank God. We had one puncher and uh, we managed to change a tyre anyway, didn't we, Mum? <laughs> I said, poor, poor Mummy's going to have me killed before we get home. <laughs> She's not used to spending this much time with me. <laughs> She'll have me up for adoption yet. <laughs> but, uh, um, what do you call it? Yeah, no, the journey's been fine. We've had to stop off in hotels at night because we had that much um, donations that we actually, like there's a sleeping area in this lorry and we actually had that many donations that we just filled the whole set. anywhere we could get space we felt because we just wanted to make mm. the most of what of this journey so we we've been stopping off at yeah we've been stopping off at uh, hotels on the way up and having a bit of a sleep and getting a bit of breakfast and then going again you know but um mm. 
the the other thing I have to say is, you know, even with language barriers and everything, it's just it's it hasn't been a problem for us because when I put it on social media that we were going, do you know the amount of people from Poland, especially, that have texted me privately and they've said to me, Hazel. My family is in such and such a place. My father is in such and such a place. We will make sure you have a warm meal and the door will be open for you if you need rest. Like even the other morning, I uh, was asked to get in contact with the mayor in Romania. And um, I I sent him, because he's helping Ukrainians get across the border from there. And uh, I just sent him a little text. And it's a man from Carlo, I think, that's doing it with him and helping him. And I sent him a little text. And do you know what he said straight away? Come here. Come, Come here and stay here for rest that's what he said oh. and we're, it's just unbelievable how many people have offered to open their houses to us like it's uh, it's you know you think the world is so big and it is but do you know when something like this happens it's just it, like it may do you know it just makes it feel a bit smaller like it's like no matter where you go on your road you're you're going to have somebody that's willing to help you or, you know and it's really people are banding together yeah. for this and it's like like I said it's just unbelievable like it's horrible what's going on absolutely heart like I mean heartbreaking like I've heard stories and um, where we went to um, there's a, it's a bus depot um, in a certain part of it and um, I, I, I've heard stories like there's do you know the women are sending their kids over on buses on their own because oh they don't have enough room to I'll start crying now when I say this they don't have enough room for them and they're putting their children on buses just to get them out of that country because they want them to live and they're following them behind on foot like like come on it's God. just how 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 can this man justify what he's doing at all you know like god it's just heartbreaking yeah talk to us about you said you you made it then to the border today did you talk us what what, what did you see what was that experience like talk us through that well, okay, the one thing I noticed straight away when we did the last stretch was um, it starts snowing. And this was this morning and it was just, and it's barely cold. And uh, like that straight away, I was like, oh God, like how are people walking in this? You know, like for days, you know, with the poor little kids and everything. When we arrived, there was um, lo- police, um, loads of makeshift, you know, them tents that um, for like, you know, like kind of like a soup run. Yeah, soup kitchens. And it's like soup runs, what we have a home for, what they do with the, for the homeless. Um, they have up the tents and then inside the tents, then they have loads of different, like there was lines of buggies and the Polish people are and, um, are leaving buggies there at the at the checkpoint. So, you know, for the, for the women, like, because, you know, they're walking for so long. A lot of them are carrying their, their kids on their hip, like. Um, there's what else can I describe it it was we went we didn't want to block up traffic and they're really worried and stressed today because of what um, there's been more you know obviously no um, um, on the news that there's been other areas now that are being bombed and they were opening up a space of time to let civilians through so they're expecting this impact of civilians now today and so everybody is stressed that's that's the truth everybody's stressed so we were bought around anyway and um to uh kind of like um I'd say, yeah like a depot a place to leave stuff it wasn't overly big now but it was you know and i i made the mistake first of all there was a load of volunteers working there and i made the mistake thinking that they were polish and it wasn't until about an hour of us unloading that i actually found out they're from U- ukraine 
and uh, you know and um, we all just unloaded all the stuff that we had gathered up and I, before I left I had just made a little post on Facebook and I asked if any of the kids from Ireland wanted to draw paintings or send a little card of you know hope or whatever and um, so I got loads of them before I left I didn't want to go and go without them and I, I bought them over and I'll tell you what you know what of everything that we had in that van that was that was the thing that, that, that had them nearly in tears and it was the thing that made them smile smile the most as well they were so happy I said this is from the children this is from children in Ireland and it's it's for you for you for you for you you know and they wanted yeah. to let you know that they're thinking of you and this is to, to wish you luck you know and uh, they were delighted and when they seen we had the I had my Irish flag with me because you know I'd be shouting it from the rooftops I'm Irish but uh, yeah and they were delighted to see that and they said you come all the way from Ireland and I said yeah we did we did we came all the way from Ireland because we want to help you know and when we were going I just gave I gave your man a big hug and I says listen to me the whole country is rooting for you the whole world is basically you know rooting for you actually another thing I must mention you know when I first went in and they asked me to, you know they were like do you want tea or coffee And but they says you have military that's what they said to me have you military and I said no I'm sorry do you know I said we, we, we bought over stuff for women and children they want to get back they want to get back in and they want to fight for their country you know it's yeah. so surreal now, Hazel, what we've seen on the news is the borders being inundated with lots of people. Um, have you experienced that? Um, well, we yeah, well, we were there for oh, there was good, there was good lot of people. Um, but I'll tell you what we really noticed when we hit. Which is like there's 44 million people. The population of Ukraine is 44 million people, and these people are wanting to get out of that country. I think they had something like did they have something like 500,000 crossing the border? They were expecting it today. I think no, I could be wrong on that. But um, yeah, so you just see lines of traffic. That's what we know. Do know noticed yesterday. You don't know. Um, there was when we were at the border. There was um, like there was Jehovah's Witnesses uh, standing there with signposts around their necks saying that they're Jehovah's Witnesses because apparently it's against their religion to fight and you know they're trying to get out and it's just it's it's just shocking and you can't put it into words. Hazel, is is your mom there beside you? Tell her tell her we say hi and uh, listen. Well done to her. I'm well done, mummy. She's tired, and like I said, oh. I think she's ready to to, to kill me. <laughs> Are you, mum? <laughs> she says I'm not. I'm not even two meters away from her. <laughs> now, Hazel, um, I know this has been a really long and tough journey for you guys, and well done again on making it over and all your hard work. If people were looking to get involved and maybe help out, is there a way we could? Um, I think that a lot of people, and I know I was advised to donate to um, to the Red Cross. I know that the Late Late Show, I heard, they were telling me from home that the Late Late Show was a massive success last Friday night. So I'll be looking forward to see that. To see, you know, I'll watch it myself when, uh, when I get home. But I, I'd advise to try and get involved with, with the Red Cross. But there is a lot of people doing uh, planning on doing this run, the same run as us. Um, so if you try and look locally over, you know, somebody who is sending over 40 foot, um, you know, and try and help that way. Um, you know, I think um, I think that would be the best way to try and to continue to help. But like, they need our help. Like, they're ba- they, you know, they they really do need our help. And you know, the, the the you know, the more we can do, the better is the way I look at it. Like, 
I've really, really learned that we are very lucky at home. We're very, very lucky. And we don't know how, like, we really don't know how lucky we are. Like, I, you know, we, when you when you see what's going on here, like, you know, it's just, it's night and day, you know. Yeah. And we, but look, just uh, hopefully, and I know the, will, the Irish will, just keep, keep, keep trucking forward and keep doing your best. And, you know, that's all anybody can do. Okay. Hazel Robinson and Hilary Robinson, thank you so, so much for chatting to us and good luck with your journey back home to Ireland. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast. FM 104. Get out my head from Shane Codd on Room 104. It's Trish and Kev here with you of a lovely Monday night. I have to say, it's been very cold, but at least there's no rain. No, it was a nice day today. I got out for a little walk. It was... No wind. Did you get out for a walk? Did. Oh, very good. To the shop. Oh, okay. <laughs> does that count? It does. It we does. were busy. Every little helps. It <laughs> to does. The shop to go get a snack exactly. and then walk back yeah. to the apartment. Get a big pastry. Oh. And that <laughs> big donut. I see the diet's going well. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> now, Kev, how do you think your music taste is? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? No, I think I, I've got a pretty decent taste in music, more or less. I don't listen to as much music as I as I used to in my youth. Okay, well, if you <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you listen to then? Is it just more news? Are you uh, stuck podca- on I news? Have a lot of podcasts. Ah. I am. I am kind of stuck on news and podcasts. Ah, and yeah, there's a lot of content out there, Trish. And sometimes music, you know, you don't always get to it. I'd yeah. like to listen to more new music. Yes, you know. well, yeah. you can get in on this as well if you want to have a say in the music played on FM 104, whether that be more carp or new, more whatever mm. it is you want. If you think you know good music, like our Kev here, or <laughs> want to tell us what you think of the tunes, head over to fm104.ie forward slash survey, or you could check out FM 104's Instagram page as well. And we have a little treat for you. For taking part, you'll go into the draw for 100 euro for a 100 euro just eat voucher Amazing. so all for just suggesting what you would like to hear okay so how have easy your, is that have your say on the playlist yes Ooh, exactly okay. so you get to tell us what you want to listen to what should we be playing mm. hmm? is it more dance is it more hip hop is it more reggae whatever it is you like you have the power to decide amazing yeah and then you get delicious takeaways as a result <laughs> that's it you'll go into a draw for a 100 euro just eat voucher think of all the takeaways you could get for the next while My God. with that voucher. Imagine if you got that voucher plus the 200 euro energy credit. <laughs> my God, you're living like a king. We're rolling in it. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. So if you do want to have your say, head on over to fm104.ie forward slash survey or you can check out our Instagram page as well. And you could be in with a chance of winning that whole 100 euro Just Eat voucher. Oh, amazing. Now, coming up next, mm. we'll be hearing from um, Murtaza Hamid. Mm. He's a fourth-year medical student in Ukraine who sh- he's been sharing his experience of how he made it out of the Ukraine. Just a few days ago, oh, he oh got out of it, but it is, it is some story. I'll yes. tell you that much. And you will not want to miss this. It is gripping from beginning to end. If you want an idea of what the reality of people trying to make their way out of that country as everything around them was in chaos and only getting worse, then you have to stick around. You have to listen to this. It's, uh, it's incredible. Martaza Hamid is coming up next. You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast. FM 104.
You're listening to Room 104 with Kev and Trish. Right now, we're joined by Murtaza Hamid. Murtaza, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Now, um, Murtaza, you've been sharing your story about how you made it out of Ukraine once Putin invaded. I suppose, firstly, can you explain to us what had you in Ukraine? What was the situation like before all of this happened? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Actually, not many people have asked that so far. So um, I was a medical student there uh, at Kiev Medical University. I was in my fourth year. Um, Obviously, we've just come through a global pandemic. Um, A lot of our studies were disrupted by this. And as a cohort, we were really looking forward to getting back to Ukraine and starting studies offline in in a kind of clinical capacity. Um, So that was the uh, background going into my return to to Ukraine. Um, At that time, there were, I think, rumors of war. There was definitely more military activity uh, in the the, uh, east of Ukraine, where the war had been ongoing for some time. Um, and there was, you know, troop movement into Belarus and so on. The warning signs were there. That, that much is clear. Um, I do get asked, you know, why didn't you leave earlier? Because the UK and the US um, governments made it very clear that an invasion was imminent and, and so on and so forth. But when you're in uh, a country that's, that's under threat and you're getting a lot of information from your friends and families who have access to outside media. But the, the feeling on the ground is one of just confidence and surety that no, something that ridiculous could not happen. Something so insane could not occur. Um, I had that, you know, I had very good Ukrainian friends who were giving me assurances that obviously I would talk, talk it through with them in the preceding weeks. Um, there was a general sense of, uh, yes, there is definite escalation happening in the East. Yes, Putin is making demands of the West in terms of NATO's expansion and, and his own security concerns. But there's no way he would achieve anything if he was just to actually invade Ukraine. So there was definitely a sense that that's an impossibility. Um, and it was that confidence that led me to kind of delay uh, my, my exit from the country. Obviously, I had friends and family kind of urging me to leave. So I started putting things in motion. I arranged storage for my possessions. Obviously, I've been there four years. So everything I owned was in my apartment in Kiev. Um, I'd made arrangements for that to be packed up. I booked my flight for uh, the week preceding the invasion, uh, following the invasion. It was just um, a little bad timing for me. Um, there was a lot that I was doing to to pack up, but it's not. I think people um, don't really understand the logistics of packing up an entire life and moving moving with a complete lack of a plan back to another country. You know, if I was moving home to the UK, I'd live with my partner, possibly out of a suitcase, but who knows how long this was all on my mind in the run-up to waking up on thursday and just having the headlines that the airspace is closed and uh, putin has invaded so yeah it was definitely still a shock which might seem strange to people considering how the level of warnings that was given but certainly within ukraine uh, it was still an incredibly shocking thing to have happened to wake up to but right up until um, that Thursday, had you been going to class? Have you been attending university? Were shops and cafes, restaurants, yeah, bars all open? open? Everything was open. It was completely normal. And that was part of what I meant by the sense of complacency and security was that, uh, you know, I lived in a very new, beautiful apartment complex that had recently been built. I was one of the first tenants in there. Children were playing in the swings the night before. You know, I was um, on a 
I was playing some video games with my friend early in the morning. Everything was as normal as it could possibly be. There was no feeling that there was an imminent threat of invasion. People weren't looking up shelters. People weren't panic buying. In fact, even the first day of the attack, Thursday, um, when I had spoken to my mother and I had an exit strategy because of the fact that uh, I had very cautious friends and family. You know, I planned that if they did attack in the insane event that they would close the airspace over Kiev and my flight wouldn't go, I could book a car and drive to the Romanian border and cross from there. I had a bug up bag ready. I had some you know, non-perishable goods uh, stored away. So I had this vague sense of preparedness, but that's because I'm, you know, I'm a young guy. I'm into that kind of thing, camping and stuff. That's, that's kind of my kind of vibe. There's lots of families who are caught completely unawares because just the normality of the situation right up until it changes, um, you know, waking up on Thursday to an enormous boom and learning that the military airport outside Kiev has been attacked, the skies are now closed, no commercial flights are flying. There's just a sense of dis- disbelief is the first thing, like this is actually happening in in what is um, up until then, just your, your safe place, your home, you know? Um, it's very, very surreal and hard to describe. After the invasion, um, mm-hmm. when you were trying to flee, you said you had an exit strategy, kind mm-hmm. of sort of worked out. Mm-hmm. Take us through the steps then of how you were able to kind of put that strategy into place, especially with now hearing that, you know, borders are going to be closed. There's no flights out of the country. You must have been in an awful lot of panic at that stage. I was I was very lucky. Um, my first instincts were kind of um i was an autopilot i would say first of all um i didn't really have time to panic or feel scared i'm not not trying to make it out like i was fearless i honestly feel it was just i didn't have time to worry about things i the first thing i did was to put a facebook update uh, on just to say because i assumed as soon as you know uh, there was an invasion putin was going to somehow shut off the electricity maybe i played too many video games but i imagine this like complete blackout of ukraine and it'll be fighting to get out so the first thing i said to my friends and family was don't worry i'm safe and i have a plan to leave um in case internet is down nothing has happened to me i'm just making my way out um the plan that i had worked out went very awry quite quickly um when i Woke up and discovered the airspace was closed. Um, I was debating renting a car and I was looking into securing a private car. Um, during that, th- it was Thursday. During that Thursday, uh, I stopped piled some food in case I need to hole up in the apartment for a little while. Not really knowing the extent of um, damage that civilian infrastructure could sustain in the coming in the coming weeks, uh, days. Because at that point, we'd heard that Vostomel Airport, the one just outside Kiev, is a military airport that had been attacked. Um, and there was uh, definitely Russian jets flying overhead, but they were striking specifically military targets. Mm. So again, there was that sense of like uh, a lack of fear of your own um, security because you're not you're not worried. You're not you're not a civilian target. You're a British medical student. You're feeling like you know even if they start um, attacking Ukrainian soldiers, they're not going to be attacking British medical students, right? You would hope. Obviously, that proved to be incorrect as the days wore on. Um, the second day, on Friday, I woke up to the loudest explosion I've ever heard. It, it rattled the windows. Uh, we were told um, that to expect some attacks in, in Kiev around between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. 
So I'd managed to just get to sleep around 3, 4 a.m. Uh, we had candles on. It was complete blackouts in the apartments. Um, and there was this incredible explosion that shocked me out of sleep and was rattling my windows to the point that I thought they might break. I'd taken the precaution of sleeping on the other side of the apartment on the floor, um, away from the windows. It turned out later that that was actually the Russian jet that was reported as being shot down over the Donetsk region of um, Kiev, which is about a mile from where I was. Um, and it had obviously crashed with no, you know, you can't control such a thing. So that's when I realized that maybe it's not safe to be on the ninth floor of an apartment building and I need to possibly start looking for a more secure shelter. However, the military curfew was in place, so I couldn't actually leave my apartment for another three hours until 7 a.m. Um, as soon as it hit 7 a.m., there was a lot of uh, Ukrainian families packing into private cars. Uh, there was a lot of traffic on the roads. A lot of people were fleeing Kiev on that first day. Uh, I think there was something like 300,000 people fled towards the west of Ukraine. Um, yeah, I decided to go to the metro station, which was being used as a shelter. But to my surprise, the metros were still running. The metro underground system, basically the subway system of Ukraine, that's been around for many years. And they were operating it. I think they're still operating it, even though uh, the cities are under siege, um, because they recognize it's, it's vital for people to be able to move around. Mm -hmm. I managed to get the metro to the center of the city, where there was uh, news that there would be free trains leaving from Kiev towards Lviv. Lviv is um, really close. It's the largest city that's close to the, the Polish border. Um, it's very far west, away from any Russian troop movements. It was basically everyone's idea of a safe haven. Um, as soon as I got to the train station, I was messaging on an expats group on Telegram that I'm part of, just um, for people who are foreigners in Ukraine, just want to get together and so on. And I met a South African guy, Johan, who over the following days became a very good friend of mine, but initially obviously was a stranger. We met at the train station and almost as we made contact and greeted each other, the sirens started going off. Um, and that was, we'd heard sirens from our windows before, the night before, but being on a street when these kind of World War II era sirens, the things you kind of only hear in documentaries and they're going off and people just start running you lose all sense of um, reason. You just basically just follow the crowd. And that's what we did. We just um, ran, picked up our bags and ran to the shelter. <laughs> what we then didn't expect was that these, these sirens would go off and we'd be cowering, expecting these, these explosions overhead like we'd heard last night, but there wouldn't be any. And then the sirens would die down and people would cautiously emerge from the shelter and rush back to the train station, not wanting to be left out and not wanting to miss the train. And this sense of confusion happened. Uh, for the next two, three hours, people running back and forth from the bomb shelter to the train station, to the bomb shelter, to the train station. And that's when I had to make a decision. I kind of looked at my South African friend and said, look, we need to get out of this situation because at the moment we're just panicking. This is panic. Uh, we're not, we don't have a plan. We're just running back and forth. We discussed a car. Uh, Johan reached out to some friends, um, one of whom was intending to leave that day and had a friend who could take us if we were willing to pay. Um, a lot of taxi drivers were charging, uh, obviously an increased sum because of the shelling and the increased risk. So we ended up meeting um, another person who would later become a friend of mine, but initially was just a driver. We paid $500 um, per head. He uh, took us, the plan was to get us to Lviv. However, we kept hearing via various information sources, Telegram channels, WhatsApp groups, 
that the Polish borders are open and they're letting everyone through and it's really good. You need to head to the Polish borders. And that's when the plan changed for me. I was insisting on Romania, but um, a couple of the people I was traveling with really didn't want to go to Romania for fear of being transported back to their home countries where they couldn't go, or um, particularly a Turkish friend of mine, he, he, he didn't want to be faced with the possibility of being sent back to Turkey. So he really wanted to avoid any country that had decent relations or that kind of treaty with, with, um, with Turkey. So when you're suddenly traveling in a group, your individual instincts you have to take second place to the group. And from, from that moment, it kind of became an exercise in managing a group of people who are all in a very terrifying situation and are all you know, um, experiencing a range of emotions. And it, it kind of became, it was me and my Turkish friend Mahmoud. We, we probably, I would say, had the coolest heads in the group. And it, it became a whole different task then. It wasn't simply about getting out. It was about keeping the group together. It was about keeping morale up. It was about planning supplies properly. It was about planning a route. At that point, did you guys know about what was happening at the borders? Because they did say to get refugee status, they need to be Ukrainian citizens or people legally living in Ukraine, such as foreign students. But there have been reports of people from African countries being prevented from leaving Ukraine. Um, so yeah. One of the quotes said uh, that if you're black, you should walk. Being with people from all different nationalities, um, did you guys know about this before heading to the border? Not at all. The first, uh, I would say Friday, which was technically the second day of the invasion, um, the, the news specifically around a particular border crossing, the Maduka border, uh, was good. We were just hearing it's good. They're letting people through. Yes, there's a, there's a queue for cars, but in a couple of hours you'll be through, particularly if you're in a car. Um, even if you go on foot, they're just waving people through. If you're a student, no problem. If you have a temporary residence permit, that's good. We all had the necessary documentation. None of us were in Ukraine for any other reason, legitimate reason. So none of us had concerns about our documentation. We were just hearing good things. And actually this was a, a foreshadowing to how things would then pan out over the next few days for a lot of people. Some mm -hmm. of the people who are still there. Once you hear somewhere is really good and you're in a situation where hundreds of thousands of people are moving and relying on the same source of information, mm -hmm. you quickly realize that what you're hearing is a good point of exit is not going to be when you get there. But obviously you're not thinking that way in the second day of an invasion. So we decided to skip Lviv and drive all night. Zakir, the driver, professional driver, he, um, he basically told us he could get there that same night. He drove for 22 hours in the end. And we managed to arrive. How did you leave? Uh, we left around 2, 3 p.m. Um, mm. Kiev. Uh, we, we stopped, picked up supplies at a supermarket. Again, the supermarkets were still running. This was the second day of the invasion and there'd been obviously explosions and sirens, but no reports of actual any any damage to civilian infrastructure or anything like that. By the time we left, we did see some unidentified tanks. They didn't look Ukrainian. We saw them ahead of us in the north of the city. And as we changed course and fled um, southwest out of the city, we started getting text messages from uh, my driver's contacts, from our contacts, that actually the Russians were moving in very quickly to the north of Kiev. They've taken the Oberlon district. Um, when we stopped for petrol just outside Kiev, we could hear um, explosions getting louder and louder. Um, it was it was a pretty intense exit. By the mm -hmm. time we started getting to the outskirts of Kiev, there was a lot of people uh, queuing. There was there was tailbacks very far. Um, at that time, another expat on the group had messaged us saying, "If you are on your way out of Kiev, I beg you to pick up my girlfriend. She's stuck. Um, she can make it out of her." 
um, neighborhood, she lives in Irpin. And if you look at Irpin now, it's essentially rubble. It's endured constant shelling um, since that moment. So we managed to get her out. She walked with her brother and her father to the roadside and uh, we, we picked her up. Um, I paid for her fare. Um, her boyfriend later paid me, but you know, it was at the moment, it was just, can, how much can we do to get anyone out with us? Our car was completely full at that point of supplies, luggage, people. Um, and how many people did you have? We had uh, Diana, my friend, it was Johan, my South African friend, me and Zakir, the driver in the first car. And it was, uh, we had a, my friend Mahmoud, he was following, he wasn't charging people, but he took one of his Turkish friends with him. He basically begged his Turkish friend to leave because his Turkish friend still at that time had this sense of, this is ridiculous. This isn't really happening. You know, they might be bombing airports, but they're not bombing us. That kind of sense of invincibility or that disbelief that, you know, Russia could do something so just barbaric as bomb apartment buildings, hospitals and schools that they're now doing. That didn't really seem like a reality until a few days into the war when you really started getting the reports of what was going on. So uh, Mahmoud has besieged his friends to uh, jump in his car. It was an old banged up Punto um, with their luggage. So we had a little convoy of two cars heading towards the Polish border. Took about 22 hours of driving, only stopping for petrol, not stopping for sleep. I did really try to encourage him to stop for sleep, but he was adamant that any time we spent sleeping, we'd lose when we got to the border. Mm-hmm. Which was prescient because there were, at the closer we got to the border, there was more and more people parked up on the side of the road, sleeping in cars. Soon there were lines of people um, parked up on the embankment, sleeping in cars. Um, when we got to the border, however, we hadn't turned out to save that much time. Um, a lot of people had fled west from further west than <laughs> Kiev. So it was, uh, it was about a 35 to 40 kilometer tailback just for vehicles. And at that point, again, we thought, okay, we haven't had much sleep. Um, but we're here in a car, the border's just there, we can just stick it out. That's when we started having these minor complications, um, like Zakir, the driver, his boss, who owns the rental company for his car, basically threatened him by saying, if you don't bring my car back to the Kiev region, um, I'm going to lock the engine remotely. And he faced the prospect of being stuck on a Polish border with no vehicle, so... He was incredibly apologetic and um, I paid him in cash and he'd actually returned some of the cash to us because he felt he'd failed to get us to where he said he would and uh, said also, you know, over a 22-hour drive where you're bonding, even though your English is at varying levels, you do you do bond. So at that point, we considered him a friend and he gave us some of the cash back and said, you're going to need this more than me, uh, which turned out to be the case. But uh, he headed back to Lviv to try and reason with his boss and also just keep his car in somewhere it, was, it would be safe. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we were all piled into Mahmoud's car. Um, and Mahmoud's car was very small. Uh, we had to ditch some luggage. And we sat there, I would say, probably from at least 8, eight 9 a.m. when we got to the border, we, we decided eventually, I basically pushed the group to say that we need to start walking because uh, we've made about two kilometers ground in, in four or five hours. and. We don't have the supplies to stay in the car for three or four nights, even one night. We had been walking up and down the the queue. We'd been speaking to people ahead of us, finding out how long they'd been there. Some of them had already slept in the car overnight. Um, By the time we left uh, the car, we realized that it really was not an option. Mahmoud was very loath to leave his car, so he drove back to Lviv, um, promising us that if anything happened at the border, if we couldn't get out, he would pick us up. Uh, again so at that point it was just me diana and johan um 
And facing, set out on foot. We set out on foot and facing a long walk. Diana, credits to her, I have to say, she was um, just, uh, you know, quite diminutive in stature. Um, she said from the outset she was worried about her own stamina. And, uh, you know, we, we did kind of just console her and just said, look, we're walking at your pace, even if we walk at a reasonable pace. Um, it's, it'll be an 11 hour walk maximum. We'll get there at 1, 2 a.m. It's, it's possible. We can actually see the border tonight. Um, the prospect of sleeping out was unnerving. We were moving in a huge line of people, but mm. largely strangers, lots of foreigners. Yes, there were locals around, but again, in that situation, your mind's kind of hyper, uh, hyper reactive and hyper aware. And, you know, seeing people offering lifts as locals to, you know, young girls or something. There's a couple of times I'd intervene when I would see an Indian student or, or someone traveling by themselves um, being spoken to local. I would even, even though the chance was that maybe this local was a genuine offer of driving them to the end of the border. But we were hearing reports of people traffickers already beginning to take advantage of the situation. Oh my God. You need to be aware. So there's all these things going on in our minds. We hadn't really eaten that well. When I say we packed supplies in the supermarket, obviously, we weren't using our right minds and we had a lot of snacks and crisps. Did and you just get crisps? Yeah. yeah, we didn't have an actual meal. Uh, I did no. actually, from the first day, I had uh, managed to pack some tinned mackerel and uh, mm. that actually became probably the most delicious meal I've ever eaten. And um, later, uh, probably about six, seven hours into the walk, um, I called a stop. I set a timer on my watch for how long we were going to stop for lunch. Um, we managed to just find some black pepper in a shop and uh, put the black pepper straight on this fish. Um, and it was delicious. We all agreed it was a life-restoring meal. Yeah. Yeah. That was oh, brain food. You were so hungry. You were, <laughs> we were starving at that point. Yeah, we didn't realize. It's that, again, at that moment, when you're so full of adrenaline and you have this destination in mind, never mind that it's several kilometers away. And what never was the mind. hours, or sorry, the um, the weather like as well? Was it really cold? Was we it snowing? Really we were lucky and a lot of things went in my favor and in the favor of my group. Um, it was cold. It was cold and it was clear. And that was an indication that the night, it wouldn't rain, mm. but it would be bitter cold. We were thankful for it not raining, quite frankly. Um, there was a moment when Johan and I discussed finding a place to sleep because of the fact that it might rain, but there was about a 12% chance of rain according to the, the weather. Um, and we decided to risk it. Uh, by the time we got to the end of the border, every time we got to a, an official or a guard, they would urge us on and say, it's only a few more kilometers, only a few more kilometers. But we were in a really uh, beaten up state by the time we got to the Madupa crossing. Um, and in the, probably the last kilometer or so, we had so many people walking past us in the opposite direction. And we would ask them, why are you turning back? And they would just say, it's chaos down there. It's chaos down there. Mm. But we didn't want to believe it. At that point, when you've invested, obviously, gambler's fallacy, you put so much time and energy into getting somewhere. You want to see it for yourself. You want to see it through. So when we got there, it was about 1.30 uh, in the morning, uh, coming on for 2 a.m. I'd made Diana and Johan take a rest. Um, we agreed that we couldn't all sleep at the same time just because of the danger. Um, so we were supposed to be taking shifts, but as it, as it happened, there just there wasn't the time. So I was, I was pretty sleep deprived when we got there. But uh, again, when you're so set on a goal, it's bizarre how your body just does things. It's mm. not like a, I'm not particularly strong, I'm not particularly fit, but it's just something that you have to do, so you do it. Um, by the time we got to the border, uh, 
there was just screaming, there was just shouting. Uh, we heard the Ukrainian guards um, just screaming the word back, back, back again and again. Uh, we saw a crowd of predominantly African students and Indian students. I had an Indian student come up to me and ask me, I'm British Pakistani, and he said, like, are you Pakistani? I said, yes. He said, they're not letting any Pakistani Indians through, so just we have to find somewhere to sleep. A lot of people have just decided that that was the case. Finding information at that time was the most difficult thing. Some people have said they'd been sleeping there for five days. Some people have said they'd been there three days. It just seemed ridiculous. Um, it's hard to describe, but off, off the center of this road, there was uh, on either side, there was these woods. And there was a little wooden enclosure that had um, space for people just to sit, I guess. But it was still the forest floor. There was no, it's not mown grass or anything. And within that enclosure, and gradually as the night wore on around it, people had started setting up camps. And I say camps, I mean literally just building a fire and squatting around the fire, keeping all their luggage close to them. So there were little huddles of people around fires that they'd built. And as the night wore on, it got more damp, obviously. Um, it got more and more difficult to find uh, wood. I'm, I've always been quite a hobbyist when it comes to camping and so on. So I managed to get quite a good fire going. We had other people come and share our fire. But there was definitely a sense of um, panic as the night wore on that people wouldn't be able to get fires going. Their hands were going numb. It was minus two, minus three. Um, it was it was pretty difficult to decide that we weren't going to cross and decide that we had to try and sleep instead. Um, the situation got worse. I basically I remember saying to Johan, "This is going to get ugly, and we need to go back because we we kept pushing forward towards the border." And we could see uh, people getting bodily kind of shoved out of line, uh, like headlocked and dragged by the guards. Who, It's a difficult one because I think it's easy to malign the guards, the Ukrainian guards. But quite frankly, it wasn't a failure of their character. It was a failure of organization. There was no one who spoke good enough English to communicate with these refugees who did not speak Ukrainian. So the only word they knew was stop, back, and just would scream these words. Mm. There was no one there who could communicate what the plan was for the refugee, where they could sleep, where they could find shelter. Admittedly, there was nowhere for them to sleep or find shelter. But there was no comfort for them, apart from having walked this ridiculous distance with hardly any sleep, hardly any food, some of them with families and children. And then just to be faced with this like wall of, um, well, an unrelenting wall. They were not letting people through. They fired warning shots. People were screaming. It, it got very chaotic. It got very chaotic. Ambulances were coming and going. I couldn't tell at that time. I remember having a very... Um, it was the first time that I really felt like I might be close to giving up on, on getting out, um, which when I called my older brother and he said, look, just stay calm. Um, he was a huge credit to me during the whole thing. Um, mm. He was very good at keeping me calm. Um, I remember What's saying, it? I'm just hearing shots and I'm mm. seeing ambulances, so I'm, I don't know what to do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Was there a moment where you actually were able to get to the front and, and show a passport or how did that come No, about? there was, I did have an opportunity, not at the front, but there was two lines essentially we worked out. Um, probably around 3, 4 a.m. we realized that the, the foreigners and all the foreign students were being um, marshaled into the left-hand side. And there was a line slowly developing on the right-hand side that was for Ukrainian women and children. Um, Sometimes in interviews I've been asked if there was evidence of discrimination, and I would say the most mm. naked evidence of discrimination I saw was that the line was for Ukrainian women and children, even though there was Nigerian women and children, there was Ghanaian women and children, there was um, Indian girls, like maybe 18, basically children, like really in difficult situations um, who were having to just suck it up in the foreigner line while in the Ukrainian women and children line, of course, uh, nobody's arguing that you should prioritize women and children, but to argue that you should prioritize Ukrainians uh, is discriminatory, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and that line was the line that we eventually took our friend Diana, who was a Ukrainian national, she was the girl we picked up on the way out of Kiev. Uh, me, Johan, who's white South African, um, and Diana, we went up to one of the guards. His immediate reaction was back, back, back. And then she stepped forward and said, look, I'm Ukrainian, these are my friends, they've been helping me leave. Um, and she said, you in, these guys back. Um, she ex- you know, explained uh, the journey a little bit as best she could, but it was at that point, we were just very, very happy to see her safe. Um, mm. When you are worrying about another person, Diana did a remarkable job with um, controlling her stamina and controlling her tiredness, but she was much, much worse for wear than we were um, by the time we got to the end of the walk. And so we, having the relief of getting one of us through was huge. And it was a huge boost to us as well. So I basically looked at him and I said in my broken Ukrainian, like, is she going to be safe? Can you guarantee she's safe? He said, look, she's going through, you guys back. At that point, we said, oh, I will build a fire. We need to find shelter for us. Hmm. Um, it actually turned out to be a very difficult journey that lay ahead of her. They kept her standing for five hours on the other side of the border. I got messages from her at 6 a.m. saying, um, I don't know what's happening and I think I'm going to pass out. At that point, I did my best to call her. I connected to her phone just as she was telling me that there was a BBC journalist there. And I said, just pass the phone to him. And then I basically just begged him. I said, look, this is a lot to ask. If you have any water, please give it to her. If you have, uh, if you see her passing out or you know, struggling to stay awake, can you get her some medical help? Because there's nothing I can do. I'm so far away from her. Hmm. Um, in the end, he did. He gave her half his water. He looked out for her. He recommended that she attach herself to a Ukrainian family who took her under their wing and uh, managed to get her across the border. As we found out in the later days, it took her a few more hours, but she got across the border. On the Polish side, I have a voice note from her that is quite harrowing, difficult to listen to because she describes the chaos on the Polish side of the border, the fact that 
She saw many African students being beaten with batons, um, being dragged away, arrested um, because they're angry and frustrated. And I think that it's that psychological thing of when you're getting closer to your goal and there still seems to be so much time and yet mm. physically you can see the border, uh, you can see the passport control and you're just being made to wait hours and hours. It's kind of a, it becomes a tinderbox. It becomes something that flares up very rapidly and panic can spread incredibly quickly. I found that during the rest of my journey, in many cases, um, there would be times where uh, it just took some panic to set in somewhere before a whole crowd was going crazy. Um, with Diana's uh, going through, Johan and I decided to make plans for ourselves. And uh, Johan um, said, essentially, I had a friend really working very hard for me, Anna. She's a Ukrainian girl who lives in Barcelona and she has a lot of contacts in Ukraine. And she was really working extremely hard to get me out. And she said, I have a seat, but it's one seat and it will go across the Polish border. And I said to Johan, look, I don't want to take this. And essentially he said, I'm not going to make you stay. I'm devastated that you're leaving, but I, he's not going to ask me to stay. He's a good guy. So we agreed that in two hours time, I would take that seat and we would do our best to find him another way out. He managed to find three South African girls who were crossing the border. And as a South African national, he crossed with them. Mm. So we said our goodbyes, uh, we hugged, uh, we went across the border. And as far as I knew, he was safe. It turned out not to be the case, but at that time, I thought he was safe. Um, uh, the Turkish friend, my Turkish friend Mahmoud, had in the meantime actually dropped off his Turkish friend, Merk, the guy who was in his car the whole time. And I wasn't really alone because just when Johan left, I met Merk uh, mm. in the queue waiting to cross the border. And I said to him, look, the situation is they're not letting people through. I know you've been stood here for hours, but I'm going to start heading back and try and make it to Lviv where I can rest. I can recuperate. I have friends uh, who are willing to put me up. We should recharge before making another plan. He was very on board with him. Um, getting back to Lviv turned out to be pretty difficult. Uh, that turned out to be a whole separate journey. Um, we had to walk at least two or three kilometers in the morning. Um, we met this lovely Ukrainian woman. Um, I didn't get her name, but she kept us going with jokes while we waited in a queue for a petrol station to open. And as soon as it did, you know, the possibility of buying porridge, like our first warm meal in days was stunning. We, we cut up a bit of Snickers, put it in this porridge. And um, as the sun came up, it was just really an amazing little moment to have with, with this guy I just met. Uh, mm. Again, someone who's since become a very good friend, we message regularly. Um, and that, point our plan was just to make it to Lviv and rest and sleep and, and think really I can't describe how close I was to falling asleep while walking it's a very strange sensation um, but we, we we messaged our friend Mahmoud who was in Lviv who had a car and he said look bro we're going to try and come pick you up but by that point the military checkpoints had been set up so that no one could get out of Lviv towards um, the border by car if they didn't have someone they were dropping off um, Essentially, what had happened, I found out from Mahmoud, was that him and Zakir, they left in his car um, to pick us up. At a military checkpoint, they had to do their best to convince these people they were just picking friends up, they were just picking friends up, we're not trying to skip the queue. Um, essentially, the only way they would be allowed to go was if they kept Mahmoud hostage. They took him out of the car and they said, you're staying with us. If your friend comes back, fine. If he doesn't, we're going to arrest you. Um, so Zakir then had to do a solo journey to get to us. However, he could only make it as far as a small town called uh, Sudova Vushni, which is quite far. It's about an eight-hour walk from where we were. 
And mm. the prospect of doing that on in the condition that we were in, I had had probably less than an hour of sleep that night. Um, it it seemed daunting, but again, it seems crazy to say it, but you're just focused on doing these mini goals at a time because the larger plan seems un, unachievable. So you have to focus on little plans. And I just looked at Meredith and I said, brother, we have to walk. And he was just like, okay. And we just walked. We got to a first little town um, from which we learned we could hail a bus further up the road, a private bus. Um, we got on a bus that cost maybe 20 pence or something. We were still charging normal prices. It was really convenient. We got up the road a little bit closer to the suburb of Vishnia. And there we literally asked everybody, taxi drivers, bus drivers, can you take us to Sudova? Can you take us to Sudova? Nobody was going there because of the level of militarization in the area. Getting back is impossible. Um, so no one was going there. That's when I put in my Facebook update that we'd essentially resolved to walk. It was about another three and a half hours, but we thought we've had some food, we've had a coffee, we can now make this walk. Um, there was tables and tables of Ukrainian food being made by these volunteers, the locals, for refugees in dire situations, free food, free coffee. And uh, one of them, Anna Maria, last ditch effort, I just asked her, her English was very good. I just asked Anna Maria, we're, we're trying to make it to Sudova. We're about to do it on foot. And she just said, you can't do that. Um, wait here, give me half an hour. She made some calls. Uh, a driver came and picked us up and drove us there within half an hour. So again, the kindness of strangers was, kind of the tale of this whole journey has just been how much people really come together for mm -hmm. people that don't know, uh, with people they don't know. It and must have been kind of shocking as well to arrive in this town and things are still going as normal. The buses are going as normal. Yeah. People are getting yeah. on, you know, that must have been some sort of weird was, situation uh, your mind was in. Yeah, absolutely. It was very jarring to be in what, you know, obviously having slept in the woods at night. Um, yeah next huddle next to a fire and then coming to a little town where the cafe's open and we managed to buy a cup of coffee and the you got a lot of sympathetic looks and everyone knew what was going on and there was a constant stream of refugees moving through these little towns towards uh, close to the border so it wasn't like the, the impact of the war hadn't reached them it's just that for them life was going on as normal mm. um for the refugees who traveled across the country who are moving back to the border have been turned back from the border it was a whole different situation. So there definitely was that sense of this disparate sense of reality. It's like what, for them, serving coffee with a laugh and a smile is, is normal. And they were just doing that. For us, that cup of coffee was so restorative that they couldn't have known what they were giving us. Mm. Um, and we had cash, but it becomes meaningless when you're on an 11 kilometer walk and there's no um, 11 hour walk and there's no nowhere to spend the cash. There's nowhere to mm. buy a hotel next to a roadside. So having the opportunity to spend cash, to, to buy some food, to buy uh, coffee, it kind of, even though probably looking back physically, I don't think we would have even made that three and a half, half hour walk to Sedona. We mentally believed we could because we had that restoration. Um, in any case, we didn't have to because we got the lift with that driver who drove us to Sedona where we met Zakir. He drove us back to the military checkpoint where it actually turns out Mahmoud had befriended the... Um, the policemen had taken him hostage. They were sharing drinks and uh, laughing and joking together. So it was a good, good kind of morale boost to come back to that. You know, we were all worried for him and in what condition they would be keeping him and so on. But he's a charming man. He definitely charmed them. Um, it was good. It was good return to Lviv. Mm. And from Lviv, we had to make plans. Basically, the, the 
the most important currency at that point was information. We really needed to get accurate information as to Russian troop movements, how safe we live for how long, which parts, uh, which countries are safe for borders. We'd heard such good things about Maduka and we'd been turned back and had to endure this um, terrible night out in the open. It was going to snow that night. We couldn't face that um, anywhere else. So, Were you again, guys ever worried about maybe charging your phone and losing connection with people? How did that? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. We, I was quite prepared. I don't know why, but on Thursday when, when the invasion happened, my bag was very streamlined, let's say. I didn't have a suitcase. I didn't have a small dragging wheelie thing. I literally just had a backpack, clothes I was wearing, one spare change of clothes, and then I just packed everything. I had a combat knife. I had two battery packs fully charged. I had um, tinned food. I had the, the fish. I had um, paper, which actually was you know, my sketchbook. I ended up tearing out a lot of drawings to get a fire going <laughs> as kindling. Um, all these things came in handy. I packed four pairs of gloves, and I still don't know why I packed them. But on that walk, I'd happened to meet three people who really needed gloves. So they came in perfectly handy. Um, it was all these little things, which I don't know if you're spiritual or religious or whatever, you might believe that they're you know, predestined. But it certainly seemed like there was something guiding me in packing my bag that meant that we all managed to have as much as we needed when it came to battery at the end of the walk we were really close to being out we probably each had about 15 percent the battery packs were dead but one of the petrol stations that had opened close to the border um had one battery pack left in stock oh my god and i said to the i asked her like does this come with charge i cannot charge it does it come with charge she had no idea so we took a gamble and we bought it it was only about 20 pounds and uh, again as i say cash was actually fast becoming useless to us so spending that much on a, on a battery pack when it could be the difference between having communication with your friends and not, it didn't seem like a big deal. And it, it came with 25% charge. Oh, um, so wow. It was enough. It was enough. <laughs> oh, um, my God. Yeah. And we got back to Lviv. We, again, an example of just the bloody mindedness of our friends. They got us a hotel room in a company hotel. They got us a hotel room for a couple of nights. We found out then that Johan had not made it across the border. He had crossed with the South African girls. Um, someone had started shouting up ahead, smashed a bottle, threatened to stab someone. The military oh. police had turned up and just shut down the crossing and turned everyone back. So despite crossing, he didn't cross. Uh, and he ended up again in Lviv. He arrived a few hours before us. We got him in a hotel. Um, I would say Irina, who's in Lviv, she's currently, I think she's corresponding with a Daily Mail journalist about trying to report what's going on, on the ground, but she was a saviour and she's been working so hard for people in Lviv. She was the one who got us the apartments, um, a friend of Anna's. We had such good support and I think that level of support was the difference um, of being able to make it out and even mentally being able to be bothered enough to carry on. There's so many times when we just thought we should just quit. Um, quit trying because every plan we make seems to be foiled right at the end. Um, mm. But we managed to, yeah, have a good night's sleep in the reef and it really made the difference for the, for the following days, making a plan to get out. Um, and even that didn't go very smoothly. <laughs> Mm. Uh, Murtaza, I'm, I'm sorry to say we're just a little bit tight for time. I mean, this is an incredible story, but unfortunately we don't have a huge amount of time left. Can you just maybe um, explain to us um, how your the final stage of the journey then, how you eventually did make it back to the UK? Yeah, the, to cut a, a pretty lengthy story short, um, 
having to then reassess our plans, Johan went to the South African embassy. He had options. Um, he was told about a train. His train didn't arrive. So he took a bus to Uzhgorod. Uzhgorod's a border town uh, southwest in, in Kiev, uh, in Ukraine. That's close to the Slovakian and Hungarian borders. So um, you have options. He managed to then cross into Hungary. Uh, for our part, we decided to uh, link up with Anna's friend Sveta, who is a Ukrainian girl traveling with her mother and her cat. And we kind of decided to travel together as a group. Um, we could benefit from their Ukrainian. They could benefit from not being women traveling alone. Uh, we decided to wait for our train, which um, we had friends buy us tickets. We waited six and a half hours in the train station from 8 a.m. Um, and the train did not show so we decided oh to jump on the closest train that was heading even vaguely in that direction. Mm. And we got to a town called Chop, which was a little bit, maybe about half an hour, 45 minutes from Ujgorod. We then had one of Sveta's friend pick us up, take us to Chop, uh, take us to Ujgorod, from where we stayed the night again, relying on strangers, friends. Uh, we stayed the night there. The next day we crossed by foot into Slovakia. And the border crossing there was worlds apart from the Polish border. We had really? tea and coffee on either side. We had immediate you know, shelter and tents and um, it, just a level of organization. Granted, a much smaller crossing facing much less demand, but still a level of care towards people who were coming in, in their time of need that really endeared the Slovakian people to us immediately. They, the level of love they showed the refugees coming through was incredible. And in Slovakia, I had, again, very good friends, friends of my brothers. Um, they drove for five and a half hours to pick us up, drove us to their family house, drove us to a hotel. And then crossing into Vienna um, in Austria is actually free travel for anyone fleeing from Ukraine. As long as you have a Ukrainian ID card, you can travel on public transport completely free. Hmm. I was able to purchase a flight home uh, to Stansted, which was the end of a very uh, difficult journey. And did you meet your brother at Stansted then? I didn't. Actually, my partner Katie came and picked me up. Okay. She was on it and it was... Uh, How was she? Yeah, she yeah, must have been worried been, sick. She has been an absolute warrior throughout, just uh, stalwart. And I think that that really has been the difference for me, has been just the level of confidence my friends and family placed in me to be able to get out. They didn't plague me with calls. They didn't try and... They, there was no sense of panic from them, so it, it kept me focused on what I needed to do, and Katie particularly... You know, she did extremely well whenever I spoke to her to, to smile, to laugh, to mm. just encourage me as opposed to worry me. And it was incredible. So to have her pick me up was amazing. Um, we drove back to her mother's house in the country and just spent a night just unpacking mentally what, what, what had happened. And then I saw my brother um, yesterday. In fact, I took a train to London where he lives and saw him and Iveta, Slovakian friend. Um, so many people are debt of gratitude to. So, yeah, wow. a lot of fun. Ritaza, looking back at that experience now and being where you are now, making it home safely, being able to see your family, mm. is that experience now just almost like a dream or how do you feel about it? I would like for it to be like a dream. Um, mm. It actually feels extremely real and I, I'm dealing with a lot of, uh, I guess, not guilt, but the sensation that there's so many things I saw and so many people I saw along the way that I wish I could fix, that I wish I could help, that I wish I could change. Mm. People who didn't have the support that I did, people who didn't have almost an international community of people praying for me and, and hoping I get out safe. Mm. So many people I know in difficult situations there now. And again, as on your way out of such a situation, you make contacts, you make 
part of these telegram groups that are working tirelessly to get people out. I'm always getting reports of this family's in Kiev, this uh, pregnant woman is stuck in the outskirts of the Irvine, this person's house is being bombed. Can we get them a train? Can we get them a bus? I've really been, I've been trying to extract myself from that, especially on the advice of my older brother and obviously uh, people who think it's very damaging for your mental health, but there's definitely ways I can still be involved in trying to help people get out of Ukraine and trying to um, get them to safety within Ukraine if they can't leave, for example, if they're Ukrainian men. Um, it's a lot. I, I wish it was over when I left. I wish, I, as I left, Putin decided that actually this is inhuman of him and he needs to stop. But in fact, it keeps getting worse. And every day I wait for news that the war is going to be over. And it isn't. And it's it's very difficult. Mm. And so what, like, you've been there. We're all here witnessing it, but through a screen mm. and feeling very helpless as well. What would you say to us here in the in the privileged West? What can we do about um, it? I think... I think the biggest thing is a change in attitude. What I've seen from people coming together to support Ukraine has been amazing. It's been really amazing. And, and quite frankly, being a refugee, Katie, my partner, she works with uh, teaching English to refugees who've moved to her hometown of Norwich. You know, she's very involved in, in, in helping with, she's been to Calais, been to, um, been to uh, sorry, she's been to um, Lesbos. There's things that we do to help refugees, but I think we have this mental picture of what a refugee is. And so it's easy to separate them from uh, normal people, we could say. And now that it's happened to Ukraine, I think they're a very different picture of, to put it quite frankly, not in race terms, but when you have these white families that are fleeing this war and persecution, it makes it, I don't know why it's been such a, such a difference. The way we respond to Palestinian, Yemeni, Syrian refugees is very different. And it, this isn't me saying we are hypocrites, we need to blame ourselves, we need to, no, but we do need to start asking questions. And I ask this question of myself because even though I'm British Pakistani, I, I've, I've somehow reconciled the idea that brown people, black people are refugees and white people never are. Mm. And now that there's this coming together for Ukraine, this uh, kind of, this sense of indignation that this sovereign nation could be attacked by a military power like Russia and subjugated. Well, that's happened in many places. You know, that's been happening in Palestine for many, many years. And Israel is a country that has suffered um, and has been given international condemnations. And yet we don't have the same kind of international response to something like that. I think what we really need to do as people for Ukrainians and for refugees and for anyone fleeing conflict is just Understand what it's like to lose your home, to lose your sense of security, your sense of self, and be turned away again and again and again, be turned away and be told that, no, things are going to keep getting difficult for you. It's unimaginable. For me, it was a small piece of it. You know, being turned away at the Polish border was very difficult mentally, but I knew I had family, friends, and everyone working around the clock to get me out. So I can't imagine what it is like to have a family, to have kids, and have no choice but to leave your home, uh, and then to face something as cold as closed borders. Mm. It's it's unimaginable. So, especially for the UK government, um, whose response and support throughout my experience in Ukraine was abjectly lacking. Um, I mean, mm. they did essentially what they said they would. They, they said, we're going to give you warning to leave. And if you don't leave, you're on your own. And essentially, that's that's what it was. Um, 
since then, you know, the, this news that we're taking in 50 refugees, pretty Patel is now doubling down on, on it's, it's just, it's very difficult to, to reconcile the human cost of something with the political approach that we're taking in the West, in Western European countries. Um, we just need a sea change of what it is like, that understanding uh, in what it's like just to, to be a refugee, because I've heard it my whole life, it could be you, it could be you. And then it actually, it was me. Um, and it shouldn't take that to change our perspective, but it, it did for me. And I really hope we can now, as a community, start changing that perspective. Murtaza, mm. uh, thank you so much for um, coming on, sh- being so open, sharing everything that's happened, everything that you saw. It's really helpful, I think, so that we do get a better understanding of uh, what's going on there and how it's affecting people so um no thank you so so much no it's been a pleasure thank you for having me on um, yeah. cheers and look after yourself yeah you in touch as well let us know yeah. what's happening yeah exactly sure. maybe we can maybe we can talk again yeah for sure um yeah, yeah right now is just unpack but uh, mentally yeah mentally yes. yeah exactly all right thanks Murtaza all the thank best Murtaza you're listening to the Room 104 podcast FM 104 it's Trish and Kev on Room 104. Now, it seems the beautiful people get all the breaks. A new study has found an interesting link between how attractive someone is and the strength of their immune system. It seems attractive people are less likely to become ill and have stronger immune system. Here to tell us more about the findings is Summer Mengelcook, PhD candidate in the Hill Evolutionary Social Psychology Lab at TCU, Texas Christian University. Summer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. Now, Summer, this is a question I want to get out of the way first because we have been told attractiveness is said to be subjective. Beauty is supposedly in the eye of the beholder. So how do you determine that someone is attractive? Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely um, individual differences in how attractive people find any given other person. You know what I mean? Everyone has their own personal preferences. But that said, there are kind of surprising like universals about what people perceive as attractive in others. So um, generally, a face that's very symmetrical is perceived as attractive, no matter what culture or group or whatever you look in it, more symmetrical faces are found to be more attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, there's this idea of like an average face being attractive. And I don't mean just like a general face, but one that is like typical of one's culture. So there's this idea that like having a culturally average face is deemed attractive as is a very symmetrical face. And so we find that, you know, yes, there's some small differences in what people find attractive, but overall, most people, regardless of their age, their sex, their uh, you know sexual preferences, uh, their culture, all these things, find the same people roughly the same amount of attractive. Okay, well that's good to know. <laughs> that is good. What about things like um, nose size or uh, lips or button nose or any of those kind of features? Do they matter? Sure. I mean, they do matter somewhat. And that gets into some of more the like cultural specificity. If it's a kind of culturally normative trait or desirable trait, 
there's some differences as far as those like specific facial facial features that people find attractive. Mm. Um, and, you know, and things vary too, you know, between like male and female faces. So there's the, the whole other body of research that I won't get too into that looks at like the masculinity or femininity of certain facial features and how people find those attractive. And so there's definitely some variance with some of those kind of feature specific things. Um, but there are some kind of general things. I was actually talking the other day with a, um, uh, he must be a dental surgeon or he does a lot of like jaw work and things like that. And there's some like specific pathologies of faces that um, people don't find attractive, like a nose that's not well made for breathing mm -hmm. or um, a jaw that's not well set up to uh, like if you can't keep your mouth shut when you're just at rest kind of thing. People tend to find that less attractive and it's associated with some kind of health, uh, you know, health problems overall. Yeah. Like the Habsburg jaw, for instance. Summer, how did this um, research get conducted then? How did you go about getting these findings? Yeah, so um, in order to investigate this, uh, we collected a sample of uh, research participants um, and we brought them into the lab and we had them do a couple surveys and things like that so we could find out some more information about them. Um, and then we brought them into a room and we had them all stand in the same spot with the same lighting. Women had to remove makeup um, and we had the, we took a picture of them. Um, and in the picture, they had to keep a neutral facial expression. So if they smiled, we tried to take it again. Some people could not refrain from smiling even after like three or four takes. So there was a couple of pictures we couldn't use for this, but we tried to get very neutral facial expressions, very similar photos. Um, and then we took the people over into another room where they had their blood drawn. And then we used um, those blood samples to run a series of um, kind of like functional immune challenge tests where we isolated their white blood cells, which are gonna be like your immune cells, right, in your blood. And we exposed them to different kinds of challenges. Um, so we either had them like, you know, plate them with a bacterial component and then see how much of that bacterial component their cells were able to um, essentially eat or um, fight over the course of some time or, um, you know, some kind of things like that to see how well their immune systems were functioning. Hmm. Then we took all the photos and we had them rated um, by a separate group of people um, to see how attractive these faces were. And then we compared the ratings of facial attractiveness to the participants' immune function. Mm, okay. Amazing. And what kind of age groups were involved? And was it a mix of males and females? Yeah, so it was a pretty even split between males and females. Um, and then the student, uh, they were all college students. So they're all, you know, 18 to 24-ish. Um, I think we might have had one or two a little bit older than that. But most of them were in that, you know, like around 20 years old. And I will say, too, these participants were all what we would consider like pretty healthy participants. So we didn't include people who had like other chronic diseases going on or things like that that might be kind of a bigger confound in this research design. So what did you exactly find out about the people who were deemed more attractive? What did you find about their white blood cells? And, and yeah, what were those findings? Yeah, so the people that were the deemed the most attractive, I think the most um, you know striking result that we found was that their blood cells were better able to um, combat bacterial threats. Um, so we plated their white blood cells with E. coli bioparticles. And then we saw how many of them they, we looked at fake, Phagocytosis rate. That's just a fancy word for basically like white blood cells eating bacteria. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at how much um, of the bacterial cells their white blood cells were able to kill. And the people with, that were more attractive 
killed more of those um, E. coli bioparticles than the people who are less attractive. Um, the other thing I thought that was kind of interesting about it was that we also looked at their uh, kind of like white blood cell composition. And we found that these people who are rated as more attractive also had really low levels of neutrophils. And the reason I think this is really cool is because neutrophils are an important part of the phagocytosis process. They're one of the main cells that actually, um, you know, eats the bacterial particles. Mm -hmm. And um, so this kind of suggests that attractive people might not just have better like immune function overall, but they might have more like efficient immune function. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, here's, I, I just am so, I'm so intrigued by it because I, I still don't understand how uh, your physical attractiveness can then, you know, affect your cells. How does that happen? Well, sure. Mm. So it might actually be the other way around. So this was a correlational study. Mm. So I can't tell you if, you know, attractive, being attractive makes you have better immune function. That could happen through like social processes or things like that or what the kind of general overarching evolutionary theory that's existed for a while is that we find people to be attractive because they have better immune function. So it's, you know, it's kind of this, you know, tricky question, right? Because you can't really design a good experiment where you're like, okay, I'm gonna, uh, you know, make you immunocompromised at birth and then see how attractive you end up, for example, yeah. right? <laughs> so um, it's a tricky kind of question to get at there. But the idea is, is that, you know, over evolutionary time, um, people who mated with people with good immune systems would have had children with good immune systems who would have gone on to keep passing genes down, um, you know, over years and years and years and years and generations. Right. Mm. And so uh, the idea is, is that we might, you know, be kind of predisposed to find people with markers of good immune function as attractive. Now, I don't know what those specific markers are in a face, but the idea is, is that the face might have some signals uh, towards someone's immune health. And that that might be one of the reasons why we find them attractive. Mm, that's fascinating so that our ancestors our ancestors were choosing the one you could see oh they're healthy they're they're robust um <laughs> i'm going going for them and uh i don't know the more poorly people get left behind yep maybe <laughs> <laughs> and now that's not to say that's the only factor that matters in uh you know people's mate choice right we don't just choose mates because or, you know people to date or marry or things like that because we're like oh attractiveness that's the number one thing or anything like that right but i think it's one factor that obviously you know influences our mate choice and might influence the health of the children we have Mm, interesting. Now, one of the other findings in the study is that men and women have very different ideas about what makes a face attractive and healthy. Can you tell us a little bit, of, bit um, more about that? Yeah, so we found one really surprising sex differentiated result where um, women found men with high NK cell function, and I'll explain that in just a second, to be really attractive, whereas men found women with high NK cell function to be less attractive. Um, and so uh, when I say NK cell function, those that stands for natural killer cells. And natural killer cells are really cool. They basically specifically combat um, threats to the body that are like rapidly reproducing cells. So things like viruses or cancer growths or things like that, anything that rapidly reproduces in your body, NK cells go to try to handle. And so uh, we found men with these really, you know, powerful NK cells to be more attractive, but women not so much. Um, and 
there could be a lot of different explanations for this. One of the things that I think might be going on is that um, natural killer cell functioning is found to be like lower in um, situations where women have like really high levels of estrogen. And so it could be the case that women with higher levels of estrogen in our sample were considered to be, uh, you know, attractive because they had these facial femininity cues of estrogen, things like that, that maybe uh, made them appear to be like high in fertility or stuff like that, but was kind of conferring a disadvantage to their natural killer cell functioning. Um, so it might be that, you know, kind of estrogen levels influence this um, in a way that we weren't able to specifically tease out. But um, again, that's kind of speculative. There's not actually a lot of great research on um, these relationships. So most of the research that I'm drawing on is from like pregnant women or, um, you know, like postmenopausal women um, getting estrogen therapies and things like that. So I'm kind of making a leap to, you know, assume that, but that could be something that's going on here. Mm. Amazing. Uh, how did you, how did this research uh, come about, Summer? Uh, when did this all start and, and what were you trying to prove um, by conducting this research? Yeah, so this research came about actually as a part of a much larger project um, where we were interested in kind of looking at relationships between immune function and all kinds of things. Um, so we were specifically interested in uh, like how inflammation levels impact things like decision-making um, and how early life stress impacts people's later immune function and how that might kind of impact some of their like impulsive decision-making or uh, mating choices or things like that. Um, and so as we got started on this project, we saw that we're like, okay, we're gonna get all this great immune function from people. We have a few key questions we wanna answer. Um, and so this was probably one of like, probably like a third big question that we're like, hey, if we take photographs of people, we can answer this other kind of question. And um, I think one of the big motivations for looking at this um, it was that there's been this idea in evolutionary psychology and even evolutionary biology more widely for a long time that attractiveness should be a signal of good health and immune function. But the actual like empirical research on that has been kind of mixed, right? So some researchers have found relationships between facial attractiveness and health, but most of the time they're using like very proximate measures of health um, to kind of assume immune function. So they might ask like women, then once they ask women, like how many colds have you experienced in the last year? And then they um, related that to their facial attractiveness. And now obviously if those reports are accurate, that's, in, that's an interesting, you know, kind of facet of their health, but it doesn't specifically get at how well their immune systems are functioning, right? There's so many other things that could come into play with that, like stress levels or how many times did you actually get exposed to pathogens in your environment or, you know, things like that. So there, there could be a lot else going on when you're looking at these more like proximate measures of health. And um, there has been a few quick kind of uh, studies more recently um, looking at, you know, more specific immune function and attractiveness. And they found kind of mixed results, but they tended to rely on really limited measures of immune function. So they just look at like one or two things in saliva or things like that. Um, and so we're like, this is a great opportunity to really like put this theory to the test. Is there actual differences in immune function based upon attractiveness? This is all just so interesting. I wish I was in the lab with you while you're doing it because I'm, I'm fascinated by it all. Now, you mentioned genes and it changing. I'm wondering, with the ever-changing world we're living in now and with sexuality and, you know, I suppose younger people who decide, you know, they want to change their sexuality, they can go on hormones and stuff. Would that, do you think, would that impact then, say, our 
immune system and our attractiveness down the line? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, um, anything you take is probably going to impact your immune function, right? So if you're taking um, like hormones, it's going to impact your immune function. In general, estrogen um, or estradiol is thought to like improve immune function. Um, and in general, testosterone is found to kind of suppress immune function. So anytime you're kind of like, you know, taking things to impact your sex hormones, you're also impacting your immune function. And some of those, I mentioned that there's like some femininity, masculinity kind of preferred traits in faces. And so definitely taking exogenous hormones can influence, uh, you know, the way your face looks and, you know, your attractiveness to some people and things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Summer, what what are you planning to do with this research now that you've um, come up with these findings? How is this going to help us? What can we learn from this? How can we use this information uh, going forward? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the, you know, I don't know, most like cute or fun kind of way to use this is that, you know, a lot of people um, when they're considering a romantic partner or that kind of thing, if they're placing a high value on that partner's attractiveness, they're seen as being kind of like shallow or vain or that kind of thing. And so uh, maybe my, you know, bit of fun advice is, hey, just because you're concerned about someone's attractiveness doesn't mean that you're just shallow or vain. Maybe you are, you know, really drawn to specific things like immune function and a potential partner that might be a little bit, you know, more meaningful than just, oh, I want them to look pretty or something like that, you know? Mm. Um, I think going forward um, with this research line, I'm interested in kind of in a future study expanding the immune measures that we looked at. Um, and so a lot of the immune measures we looked at were more focused on like bacterial threats. Um, so I would love to kind of like expose people's selves to more viral threats and see how they handle those. Cause I don't think that what we looked at was necessarily like, you know, covering the gambit of full immune function. Um, it would be really cool to do like a cold study where you bring people into a lab and then you kind of put them up in like a lab hotel room, if you will, and you expose them to rhinovirus and basically give them a cold and then see how long it takes them to recover from said cold, depending on their attractiveness. So I think doing something like that would be really cool. Those studies are really expensive and hard to do, but they provide like excellent information about how someone's, uh, the different facets of someone's immune system works together to deal with like a real life actual illness, you know, because a lot of the tests we did, we isolated their cells and we looked at one little part of immune function in a Petri dish, essentially, you know, and your immune system is made up of so many cool different systems that work together that being able to see that in like a live real, um, you know, immune challenge would be super cool. Um, more immediately, I think I am going to um, kind of, I have some cool collaborations in the work, works now that uh, this paper's come out. And so I'm hoping to have the faces rated by um, that group of oral surgeons that I was talking about before for like facial, facial pathologies and see how well that kind of uh, maps on to people's immune function and attractiveness ratings as well. Because I think that idea of like things that actually make your face not function well um, as being a or unattractive is uh, super interesting. Yeah. I love how you want to get a load of hot people in a room and just expose <laughs> them to a load of viruses. I love it. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Um, so we can we can no longer. It it could be a subconscious thing. Then that you're oh, saying yeah. that we that we 
choose the you know good looking one because we might be thinking uh that you know they're going to be healthy they're going to be they might they're going to stick around because they're less likely to like die away from something right mm-hmm. yeah and then also more likely to pass on those strong immune genes right? and i definitely think this is a subconscious you know when i'm talking about some of these things of like oh yeah we want people who are healthy and our mates that's not what you think when you go to a bar you're not like Ooh, that person looks healthy. I'm going to take them home. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. like, oh, they look attractive. Da, da, da. Let's see where this goes. Um, so, you know, these aren't like conscious kind of things that you're thinking, but rather just, um, you know, some of the underlying reasons why we perceive things the way we perceive them. You know, there's nothing like inherently attractive about an attractive face. We just have brain structures and functions and processes that lead to us finding these faces attractive more often kind of the Mm. same thing with like uh like there's nothing inherently delicious about like sweet and salty foods we love sweet and salty foods but there's nothing that just like oh my gosh these are good because they're inherently good they're good because we've evolved to like them because liking sweet and salty foods got us more like calorically dense high value uh food preferences uh when food was a little more scarce in our evolutionary past and so like Mm. for example dung beetles think that little balls of poop taste wonderful that is their go-to food you know what i mean and so uh, there's nothing inherently good tasting about the foods that we like just like there's nothing inherently attractive about the faces we like it's just that we on average tend to like them more and so you know some of that evolutionary underpinnings of why is like you know the potential explanation for why it is that we find these same faces attractive I think mm-hmm. down the line, we might have a bit of an issue with this because so many people now are getting cosmetic surgery and it's so readily available that like the whole world is going to be attractive and it's going to be hard to decipher who what's what anymore. Yeah, it would be fascinating to see if you're, you know, uh, actually I've had, uh, I have an undergraduate research assistant who works in my lab who's really interested in this idea and she's putting together an on it, honors project on it um, to look at how, you know, plastic and um, things like that influences people's perceptions of other people's like attractiveness and things like that. And if um, it kind of like removes some of the signaling quality of attractiveness, or Mm -hmm. if people, you know, still consider them to be the same amount of attractive as someone else who has similar like body proportions. I think she's very specifically interested in like waist to hip ratio things, um, which is like how how big your butt is with (laughs) those, um, like butt implants and um, how that might impact uh, like people's estimates of like how young or fertile or things like that women are. Mm, I look forward to seeing that study as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, I think there's some really interesting uh, things with cosmetic surgery that's going to come up as you know, that becomes more common in the next um, couple of years here. Well, Summer, thank you so, so much for sharing your findings with us and talking us through that because uh, that was very interesting. We're all going to be looking around now to see who's attractive and who's not, who's got a strong immune system and who doesn't. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for um, talking with me. This has been a great time. You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast. FM 104. Well, that was Tones and I with Fly Away on Room 104, bringing us to the end of the show. We just heard from Summer Mengelcook telling us all about beautiful people and that basically they have better genes than the rest of us. Oh, Summer, Summer, Summer. She wasn't bad looking herself, Trish. <laughs> Summer was very beautiful, so I'd say, yeah, genes are on point. Yeah, and she's got a great immune system. Mm-hmm. Now we just have to w- work on us. 
<laughs> speak for yourself. Okay, I'll speak um, for myself. I'm trying to relive my years and think, uh, was I very sickly? I don't think I was very <laughs> poorly. sickly. Was poorly. I poorly? <laughs> and if I was, does that mean I'm not a beautiful person? You know what? Beauty, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. So, you're beautiful if you think you are. Yes, and so may we all live healthy, long-lasting lives. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, Kev. Now we're back tomorrow from 9pm, the regular time of 9pm. But don't forget those mad fellas on the strawberry alarm clock. Jim, Jim and Nobby are back from the crazy hour of 6am. Well, Just six hours from now. Oh, God, we'll God be in bed them. anyway. God bless them. <laughs> we'll be getting some shut eyes. So we'll chat to you from tomorrow at 9. Take it easy. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.